Dear Father, we do thank you for your demonstration of faithfulness in this passage as well. We thank you uh, that we can see Abraham's hope displayed uh, and that we can share in that same hope, uh, that we can trust that your promises are sure and secure, sure enough that we can stake our life and our death on it. Uh, we thank you that you are the one who uh, fulfills your promises, that you are the one in whom we trust. Uh, we do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Paul, I'm getting a little reverberation on here. All right. So we are in chapter 23, and we're going to take the whole chapter in one. Uh, this is Sarah's death and burial. We'll give you the main points at the outset so that uh, as we go through the text, and this is a bit longer of a text than we're used to, uh, you can have these main ideas uh, on your mind. First, the beginning of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is seen come to pass, both in the birth of the promised seed son, as well as in the first acquisition of private property ownership within Canaan. Now, just as we know that the ultimate promise is not fulfilled until the Messiah, we still see an early fulfillment or a foreshadowing fulfillment in the promised son of Isaac. And so it is with this foreshadowing of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant in which Israel will possess uh, all of the land of Canaan. We have this foreshadowing in a small plot of land which Abraham legally owns and is recognized by his neighbors as owning. Secondly, Abraham's faith in God's promises leads him to bury Sarah in Canaan, a demonstration of his hope in the fulfillment of God's eternal promises, that eternal promise that they would have eternal descendants and that this land would belong to them for all of eternity. Our hope, like Israel's, is tied to our knowledge of God's power and the hope of the resurrection. Now, if you remember our chiastic outline, remember a chiasm or a chi in Greek is an X. And so this is an outline in the Hebrew text that looks like an X. It goes down to a point and that point is supposed to be the main idea of the passage or what it's all pointing to, uh, the climax of the narrative, if you will. And so last time, while well, we saw Abraham risking it all for the covenant. Really, he was risking it all based on his faith in God's promise and who God is, the faithful God of covenants. Then we briefly saw the genealogy of the arrogated line of Nahor. In other words, the cousins, which are not part of the Abrahamic covenant, not part of the seed promise. That will be reflected in Genesis 25, 11 through 18 with the arrogated line of Ishmael, where we see Ishmael's children who do not uh, receive the Abrahamic covenant, but have a different promise from God. Today, we focus on the death and burial of Abraham's first wife, Sarah, which will be reflected by the death of Abraham himself and the burial of his second wife, Keturah, in chapter 25, 1 through 10, with our climax being the process and acquisition of finding a wife for Isaac, the continuation to the next generation of the seed line. 
so that we see God's faithfulness in bringing about the promise of generation after generation after generation of uh, children to Abraham. This morning we're focusing on the death and burial of Sarah, but we actually don't get that much information about her death or about her burial. These are two bookends on a legal contract. We see the cause for Abraham purchasing land, and then we see the result of what he did with it. But most of chapter 23 is taken up in this legal procession of Abraham with his neighboring Hethites trying to haggle for a piece of land that they do not want to give him. So we have at first the request of a lot to inter his wife in, and then we see the reluctance of the neighbors to import land owners into Canaan. And then finally, we'll see the hope of resurrection uh, that is the basis of Abraham's uh, burial of Sarah in Canaan, despite not having seen the total fulfillment of God's promise in the Abrahamic covenant. In verse 1 and 2, we see the cause. Why did he go into Hebron and seek a burial plot? We have now, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah and Sarah died in Kiriath Arba. This now indicates a point in time which was 62 years after they first entered into Canaan. If you remember, Abraham was about 75 when they first entered. Uh, And so uh, he has almost lived as much of his life as a sojourner or a wanderer in the land of promise as he had before he received the promise. They had lived 62 years in this land, and had only recently seen the fulfillment of God's promise of a seed son, and were yet to really see any fruition of his promise of land. They continued to be wanderers. Abraham at this time was 137 years old. Uh, He would still go on to marry again and die a few decades later. Isaac here is 37 years old. But this is the only woman in scripture whose age at the time of death is recorded. This should set her over and above the others in terms of significance, but the pattern in which her life and death is recorded here is reminiscent of a patriarch, not a matriarch. In other words, God treats her as significant in this seed line as the men in this seed line. For example, we have Terah. We get his age at death and we get his place of death. Only the men to this point and only the men going forward will receive this kind of treatment. The days of Terah were 205 years, and then Terah died in Haran. Here we have Sarah living 127 years and dying in Kiriath Arba. Kiriath Arba literally means the city of four. Some people speculate that this is uh, similar to our tri-cities. It's quad cities that you've got four cities that come together and share some sort of a focal point or a border. This may be, however, in Joshua, when we encounter this land again or this city again, we have an exclamation. It says, Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron. So Arba appears not to be the descriptive for, but a name, a name of someone for whom this city or this town was known. 
Of course, the sons of Anak were part of the Nephilim, we're told in Numbers 13.32. Uh, however, the problem with this may be that this was Israel's second report. The first one hadn't quite scared uh, the people of Israel enough to do what the ten lying spies wanted, and so they lied. They exaggerated in the next one, and they said, there's also Nephilim in the land. And to give credence to their claim, they said, don't you know the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim? And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. But in either case, we have multiple uh, accounts of this land being named after the sons of Anak, which is, uh, whose father was Arba. So Kiriath Arba literally means the city of Arba, the city where this famous patriarch Arba lived. It later came to be known because of uh, Abraham's life there in the city and his purchase of this land, it became known as Hebron. Hebron's the name we knew it as. In fact, uh, today it even has another name. It's called Khalil today, uh, which means the friend of God, uh, because Abraham was the friend of God. So well, at one point it was named after this man Arba. Now we know it because of Abraham. It's also important here that Moses reiterates more than once that this is in the land of Canaan. We haven't seen this phrase many times, but where we have has been attached to the promise of God of owning land in Canaan. In fact, owning all of the land of Canaan. We first see it in the promise that God gives to Abraham and Sarah, where he says, go forth from your country to the land which I will show you. That land which he shows them is the land of Canaan. This is where they arrived and where God finally says, stop, here's the place. This belongs to you by divine grant. Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. They came to the land of Canaan. Abraham passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, to the oak of Morah, but the Canaanite was then in the land. If you remember, this was a statement of problem. God had promised to give them this land, but when they got to the land, it's already occupied. There are already Canaanites living in it, and God is not ready to dispossess these Canaanites, but he is ready to reveal to Abraham the promise of this land in the future. So the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. At the end of verse 2, we see that Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. In the context, this going in parallels with Sarah died in Kiriath Arba. That means that Abraham was not with Sarah when she died, but he went into the city upon her death. Now, Abraham and Sarah had been living in Hebron from about the time of Genesis 13 uh, through Genesis 20, where we see Abraham moving further down towards Gaza and in uh, Gerar. This is one of the other events where he sells his wife for safety. And after that event, he continues to live in Gerar, but she apparently moves back to Hebron. Hebron was probably the place where they lived. And uh, 
Beersheba, Gerar, and the lower parts of the Negev was probably where Abraham drove his flocks. So he was away on work, you might say, while his wife Sarah died at the age of 127. Some things we can speculate from that, and of course it would just be speculation, was that Abraham possibly did not expect her to die, meaning that even at 127 she may have died young. Also, she may have died quickly, not giving him time to come back before she died. But in either case, it's clear from the text, Abraham was not with her when she died because she was in Kiriath Arba. And as Genesis 22:19 told us, Abraham returned to his young men. They arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is about a day and a half journey from Hebron. Well, based on customs, but also Abraham's hope, he has an obligation towards Sarah, not to return her to her family in Haran and to have her buried there, but to have her buried in the place where she has staked her hope, to bury her in the land of Canaan, which God promised not just to Abraham, but to Sarah and to all their descendants as well. And so Abraham rose from before his dead, that is Sarah, and he spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me burial, a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now the question arises, who is Heth? We've met people from Hebron. We met Anner and Ashkel and uh, can't remember the third one, but in Genesis 14, we see Abraham living in Hebron and he takes his three buddies with him to chase down the kings from the east who have taken Lot and his and the city of Sodom and the king of Sodom and all their goods. Well, this sons of Heth seem to be a different group of people. Back in Genesis 10, 15 through 19, we see Heth mentioned for the first time. He is one of the sons of Canaan. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, Archite, Sinite, Arvidite, Zemurite, and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. The territory of the Canaanite, again, the territory will become important even just in the next chapter, extended from Sidon as you go down to Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim as far as Lasha. Now, Sidon, you might recognize from later in Scripture, Tyre and Sidon up in the north. This is Lebanon today. And down as far as Gerar or Gaza, where Abraham has been interacting with Abimelech in the last few chapters. And it goes as far over past the Mediterranean as Sodom and Gomorrah Adman's Boim, which is the Dead Sea. So we have up in the north, just south there of Beirut, Sidon. Uh, and down in the south, we have Gaza on the border with Egypt. And then it goes over to Lasha. And Lasha means uh, fissure or a cut in the land. And so this probably refers to the Jordan River Valley. On the left-hand side there, we've got some of the major cities. We've got Jerusalem. About in the middle, we've got Gaza off on the far left, and Al-Khalil, or Hebron, right there south of Jerusalem, and then Beersheba down south of that. These are the general lands that were inhabited by all of these Canaanites. And of course, it was the land of Canaan 
that God had promised to Abraham. But his promise was extended out 400 years already. Back in Genesis 15, 18 through 21, God told Abraham that before the fulfillment of this covenant, they would go into a foreign land and be held captive there, and then God would bring them back. God didn't give them the timeline yet. We would find out later that this would be 400 years. But he did tell them that they would be held captive first. But then he promised to the descendants uh, that he would give this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river of Euphrates. This was an extension beyond the land of Canaan that God would give to them. This would include the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, and the Raphaim. These are different groups of people outside of the land of Canaan. And then the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Now why I bring this up is because the Hittites mentioned here are not the Hethites that live in the land of Canaan. The Hittites didn't come around for another 400 years. They would have been there by the time Moses returned to the land, but they were not in Canaan. They were in Anatolia, or modern-day Turkey. At the time, Hittites as a tribe or a nation did not exist in 21 or the 21st century BC. Uh, they came around in the 16th century BC. So there has been some discussion or debate over this, saying that this is a later addition to uh, Genesis, that it could not have been true, but the words are different. We have Hittites here, and we have Hethites in Genesis 23. Abraham calls himself here a stranger and a sojourner among you. He's not including himself with these people. He's not counting himself among the Hethites. He is remaining separate and distinguished from them, despite the fact that he's seeking land in their nation. This stranger and sojourner is what we call a hendiadis, which means it's two words that come together to make one concept. This is what we might call a resident alien. I was a resident alien in Korea for about three years. I had different rights than citizens. The same goes for Abraham here. He has different rights than the rest of the citizens, and one right that is restricted from him is he is not automatically allowed to own property. He has to receive permission, direct permission from them. While he has some sort of footing in the community, has no legal right to obtain land. We also note that Abraham distinguishes himself by saying he is among them and not part of them or in them, and they also maintain this distinction. He is dwelling in the same location, but he is not one of them. His request is that they give to him, or Natan, a burial site, again, among you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He's giving them his reason as well. Now he asks for them to give, and this is not a request that they freely give to him something. This is a request that they pass over possession or legal ownership of to him. We saw this as well back in Genesis chapter 17, where the verb establish, or that's translated in English as establish, is actually the verb natan, where God promises to hand over the covenant between him and Abraham that he will multiply him exceedingly. That he will establish it means that he is passing over possession to Abraham, that it belongs to him by his 
legal right. The Hethites don't give in that easily. They don't want this foreigner, a foreigner that they recognize as a very powerful man, owning property among them while not being one of them. The sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. Notice their careful use of pronouns here. Never do they transfer ownership over to Abraham, either legally or in their turn of phrase. While Abraham has his dead, they have their graves. They are willing to let him use their graves for his dead, but not to let him have their grave as his own grave. In other words, we are going to be generous to the point we are willing. You may bear your dead, you might, may leave her among us, but you cannot own this land. They began this statement with what we will come to realize is a legal term. Hear me, my lord, or hear us, my lord. You are a mighty prince among us. That does not mean, again, that he is one of their princes. And in fact, this is not even the best translation because literally in the Hebrew it says you are a prince of God dwelling among us. They recognize his distinction, but they also recognize his stature his relationship to God, and I'm sure they've also heard of his stories down in Gerar with Abimelech. Remember, it was to Abimelech that God revealed that this man is a prophet, and even though he was acting as a scoundrel among them, God's protection was on him. Therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live, but if you do not restore her, you uh, know that you shall surely die you and all who are yours. So while this God is powerful, this man is somewhat untrustworthy, but also it bears repeating he's a foreigner. Nobody wants to hand over their land to foreigners. Of course, we are talking a lot about this in our own country since uh, China has been buying up agricultural land all over America. Now imagine that here in the land of Canaan. You've got this big, powerful foreign stranger coming in and he wants to buy your land and they're saying no you can't buy our land you're welcome to be here you're welcome to use the land but you cannot own it abimelech said behold my land is before you settle wherever you please abimelech gives abraham permission to settle anywhere and while we will find in chapter 21 that abraham digs a well and that well belongs to him the land does not and that's why they're able to come to him with the general and the king and say, essentially, what are you doing? Abraham says, I dug that well, it's mine. Okay, well, the well belongs to you, but the land does not. Here, he actually purchases land. He will actually receive the title deed to land in the land of Canaan. Well, here is where we really recognize the Hethites' reluctance to pass over any ownership of their own land to Abraham. And it starts with Abraham specifically requesting the cave of Ephron. Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. Again, what I have highlighted in blue here is part of a legal procession that Abraham has entered into with these Hethites. 
and he spoke with them, and he also said, hear me. This is the beginning phrase of, here's my counter offer. If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight. He takes what they said, that they do wish for him to be able to bury his dead, and he adds to it his next offer. Approach Ephron, the son of Zohar, for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. So while he requested generally a burial site, and they didn't say any one of us will give you their lot, but they said none of us will refuse you, a double negative there, saying essentially, we're not giving you, but we will allow you to. Here, he says, okay, if you're being generous, let me push this generosity and say this specific site. But rather than just not being denied access to it, once again, may I have possession of it. Well, the people of, uh, of or the Hethites won't need to go to Ephron because as we'll find out in verse 10, Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth. And Ephron the Hittite or the Hethite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even of all who went in at the gate of his city. Uh, oh, I put the pictures here, I guess, where we've got Canaan down here in Jerusalem and Hebron about in the center of the picture and all the way up there, um, which is actually further away than it looks in this picture, is Anatolia or Turkey, where 500 years later, the Hittites would uh, rule the land there. But this Ephron, the Hethite, answers Abraham, again, in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even all who went in at the gate of the city. Now stretch your brains and think back four chapters, which I think for us was about eight months, and what happens at the gate of cities back in this time. Remember, we find Lot sitting in the gates of Sodom, and this indicated to us his high stature in the community, because it was in these gates of the city that legal transactions were made, especially real estate deals. Abraham came to the right place to make the right kind of offer uh, among the right people, where in one of these little cubicles, he would approach those who had a legal right to say whether or not he could purchase land among them. These would be, again, highly recognized people in the community, landowners themselves. And so those would be sitting in the gate of the city, passing judgment on whether or not Abraham is allowed to own land and allowed to purchase land. And he singles in on one of them and requests specifically their property. And so Ephron, responding to Abraham, says, No, my lord, hear me. In other words, here's my counter offer. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you, bury your dead. Now at this point, we start clapping for him, right? And say, how generous, how magnanimous of you for giving it away for free. There's one problem here. Who would be making Abraham rich? Who would be giving Abraham the land? Would it be God fulfilling his promise? Or would it be Ephron the Hethite? Secondly, a gift there is not like a gift here, and even a gift here comes with some obligations. 
If Abraham were to receive this land in Kiriath Arba from Ephron, he would still be indebted to Ephron as having received a gift from him. It wouldn't be a simple transfer of possession with no strings attached, but Abraham would be subjecting himself to Ephron and Ephron's feudalship. Genesis 14.21, remember the attitude of Abraham towards the promises of God. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, give the people uh, to me and take the goods for yourself. Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. For fear you would say, I have made Abraham rich. I will take nothing except what your young men have eaten and the share that the men who went with me, Anner, Ashkol, and Mamre, let them take their share. We see a similar event occur in 2 Samuel 24, where David is purchasing land that will eventually become what we know today as the Temple Mount. Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? Now Aruna, or Ornan, in the Chronicles, he's called Ornan, is not a Jew. He's not a Hebrew. He is a Jebusite, one of the Canaanites. He said to David, or David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. Aruna said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up what is good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. Everything, O king, Aruna, give, uh, everything, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Now, Aruna here adds to the deal. He doesn't just say, okay, take the threshing floor, I'll move my stuff out. He says, take the threshing uh, floor and take everything else in it. In fact, take my oxen as well and use them for the burnt offering. And where we might think how generous this is, David does not accept the gift. David tells them in, him instead, no, but I will pay for it because I will not sacrifice to the Lord something for which I did not pay. In that point, it would be Aruna's sacrifice and not David's. Well, Ephron here is, I think, going to try to bluff Abraham, and Abraham is going to call his bluff. Abraham bowed before the people of the land. Again, this is part of a legal procedure. He is following the customs of the land that are expected there. He spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, those who have the right to decide whether this is a legal sale or not, saying, if you will only please listen to me. Here he's beginning his counteroffer. I will give the price of the field. Accept it from me. Now he came here to barter for a cave. Ephron added to it, I'll give you the cave and I'll give you the field and I'll give it to you for free. And then you'll be subject to me as your feudal lord. What does he say? All right, I'll, I'll take your field too, but I'm going to pay for it. Ephron answered Abraham, saying, My Lord, listen to me. Again, this starts to sound to us a little bit like watching C-SPAN, where we've got all of this uh, 
May the gentlelady be recognized and will the gentleman please reclaim his time. This is what we are seeing here happening in Heth or in uh, Kiriath Arba. We see a legal process in which a foreigner is negotiating for the right to purchase land in a foreigner's nation. He says, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. What we might not understand that he's doing here because we don't use shekels is he's essentially saying for something, let me just uh, pick a random number. You want my house? My house is only worth about $4 million. I'll give it to you for free. It's nothing between us. Well, that's a pretty exorbitant price. A very exorbitant price. In 2 Samuel 24, 24 through 25, we read, The king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. For I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Now the threshing floor is smaller than a field, true. It's not a burial cave. It's not an agricultural field. But 50 shekels of silver, even at that time, seems to have been a little exorbitant. There is a bit of a conflict here, or an apparent conflict, with the same record in First Chronicles 21-24, where we see King David saying to Aruna, or Ornan, as he is called in First Chronicles, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord and offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. The important addition here is for the site. He's not just buying the oxen. He's not just buying the threshing floor. He is buying the entire mountain, the entire temple mount. He buys all of Mount Moriah for 600 shekels of gold. Just a little bit more than Abraham pays for this, um, this field and its cave. In 1 Kings 16, 23 through 24, Omri buys the entire land of Samaria for 6,000 shekels, about 10, 15 times what uh, Abraham here pays for this little field. Now you can see up there in the circle about what Omri purchased for 6,000 shekels. Can you even see the circle down by Al-Khalil, which is probably 100 times larger than the field that he purchased? I can barely see it. This is a very different sized plot of land. 6,000 shekels is buying a nation. It's not buying a field. In Jeremiah 32, 9 through 12, what does Jeremiah pay for his field? It says, I bought the field which was at Anathoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, called in the witnesses, weighed out the silver on the scales, took the deed of purchase, sealed the copy containing the terms and conditions of the open copy. Uh, he did this in the sight of Hanamel and the sight of the witnesses before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard or in the city gate. 
Jeremiah paid 17 shekels of silver for his field, but this is also during the time of captivity, when the land would not be worth nearly as much because there's no hope of keeping it. And so this was probably a low price, 17 shekels for a field, but 400 shekels for a field is still an exorbitant price. Abraham listened to Ephron. Now, up until this point, everyone's saying, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. This, again, is a legal term. Abraham listened to Ephron, or better in the Hebrew, Abraham heard Ephron. In other words, he heard the deal he was willing to take. Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver, which he had named, in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver. Ephron made a mistake. He told him what it would be worth for Abraham. He tried to overshoot so that Abraham would not want to buy it, and Abraham calls his bluff. Abraham pays for the field and the cave, which Ephron tried to make seem too expensive for Abraham to buy. This probably was an incredible sum of money that he paid for this tiny field, but it was worth it because Abraham was staking his eternity in this land. And so this didn't just have a temporal value of I'll bury my wife and then when I die, I don't care what happens to it. This had the eternal value of Abraham's hope in God of giving this land to him as an, e and as an eternal possession. And so Abraham is thinking in terms of eternal generations here. And for him, that promise of God is so sure he's not even gambling when he puts down 400 shekels for this tiny little field. Well, here we have the end then of the Hethite estate contract that Abraham and Ephron have been negotiating. So Ephron's field, which was in Machpelah, uh, Machpelah means double cave, so it may have been a cave which had two uh, compartments in it, which faced Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it. This is the specifications of the property which was purchased, kind of like we would do a uh, property survey in order to establish what property boundaries are. Then he says he also received with it all the trees which were in the field that were within all the confines of its border. These were deeded over to Abraham for a possession. It now belongs to Abraham. He has paid for it outright. Legally, he owns land in a foreigner's country. In the presence of the sons of Heth, before all who are in the gate at the... Or, who went in at the gate of his city. In other words, he did it in the right place. He did it the right way. Uh, he paid for it, and it is outright his. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife. He buried her in the cave of the field of Machpelah facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Once again, a reiteration that Sarah has uh, been laid to rest, not in her homeland of Haran or of Ur, but in Canaan, where God promised they would have their eternal destiny. The field and the cave that is in it, Moses summarizes, were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. And this was the final signature there on the contract that irrefutably makes this land, this field in Hebron, belong to Abraham. Now there is a very important application that we can draw out of this, and it's been a while coming here in Genesis, 
where we see Abraham continually doing stuff that maybe if we're just thinking of this life makes no sense. But when we recognize Abraham's depth of understanding in God's promise and depth of faith in God's power, we understand what he's doing. Offering up his son, having full knowledge that God is so faithful and so powerful that if God wants him to sacrifice his son, then God will have to resurrect him and he will. Here having the faith that he should lay his wife to rest in this land that he has not received from God yet because he is absolutely sure that God will give it to him. And when will he give it to him? If he doesn't give it to him in this life, God owes it to him in the resurrection. Because God's promises are irrevocable. And so we have our three applications, our primary application to Abraham, secondary to Israel, and the hope that they can have based on the Abrahamic covenant, and our tertiary application, the hope that we can have, because it's the same faithful God who gives us our promises. And so we begin with Abraham's hope. We turn to Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. In other words, God didn't tell him ahead of time when he's in Haran, go there into the land of Canaan, and when you get to the land of Canaan, stop. He said, go. And Abraham went. And as Abraham was going, God says, stop. This is the land. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. He is a resident alien. Remember, he recognizes this characteristic of himself as he's dwelling in the land. He doesn't go in and say, all right, everybody out. God just gave this land to me. He goes in and he recognizes that God has given him an eternal promise, but he has not yet given him possession. As in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He's not looking to take over someone else's kingdom. He is looking for the kingdom that God is going to hand to them. The same thing might be indicated about Christ. Christ is not coming to take over the kingdoms of this world, but to put them away and to bring his own. And that kingdom which he brings belongs to Israel first and then to the Gentile. The author of Hebrews continues and says, By faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah trusted God. She trusted God's power to do the miraculous, to bring life to death. Where there was death in her womb and the inability to reproduce, God brought life from it. This, I think, was a turning point for both Abraham and Sarah where they saw God's power over life and death, and what was considered an impassable void to them, an impassable void of death, was nothing to God. Therefore there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore, God's faithfulness to his Abrahamic covenant. And yet, he adds the... the uh, Note, all these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, 
And that is exactly what Abraham is doing by burying Sarah in the land of Canaan. Having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. In other words, had Sarah been thinking of Haran, there was plenty of opportunity for Abraham to have her buried up in Haran, that land from which she came. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You know, even the Jerusalem that is present today that we can go visit is not the fulfillment of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. It's not until the kingdom, the kingdom that Christ will bring to this earth, that he will establish, that he will build the new Jerusalem, which will sit in the place of Jerusalem today, this city which has its foundations in heaven, that God is bringing down to earth so that he can fulfill this promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. Indeed, if they had been thinking of that country, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offered up uh, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. The author of Hebrews, drawing attention to the fact that it could not have been just any son of Abraham to receive this promise, it had to be through Isaac. And God was telling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Therefore, Abraham could conclude of only one thing. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. This appears to be the moment that Abraham realized God is faithful. God is powerful. He was powerful enough to bring Isaac into this world. If he's asking me to take him out of this world while promises remain to be fulfilled in this specific person of Isaac, God must be powerful enough to bring him back too. From which he also received him back as a type. Now Israel's hope is predicated on the same event. But some, especially around the time of Christ's first advent, had missed this in the text. We encounter a group called the Sadducees, and as the old Sunday school joke goes, they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Well, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They believed that Moses was the only true prophet and that all other writing Jews, prophets or priests or what have you, were secondary texts. They were not authoritative. And so you could not base any doctrines on anything except the law of Moses and the law of Moses alone. So if Moses had not written it, it's not authoritative. Now, the problem for the Sadducees then was that the only time resurrection is mentioned in the Old Testament directly is in other books, not in the five books of Moses. And so they did not believe in the resurrection. Now, in Matthew 22, these Sadducees, along with the Pharisees and the Herodians, 
all come up and challenge Jesus. They're trying to catch him in some sort of an error because at this point they had already decided to kill him. The end of John 11, because of the resurrection of Lazarus, they conspired together and said, we got to get rid of this guy. We got to off him. We can't just let him continue teaching and preaching because everybody's starting to believe in him. And so this was part of their trying to discredit Jesus. The Sadducees come up to him with what they consider a very clever problem that they find in the text. It says, on that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him, saying, asking, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother is next of kin, uh, who is next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Notice they're basing their, uh, their belief on something that Moses had taught, and they are putting it against the resurrection which they believed Moses had not taught. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother, so also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. Now, for the Sadducees, there's no problem if there's no resurrection, because this, these men were now gone, and the wife was now the wife only of the others. And so they said this raises a problem then. If you resurrect all these people, well, who does the woman belong to? Whose wife is she? And essentially Jesus' response is, you're thinking myopically. You are only thinking of this world and you're transferring all of what you know about this world into the next without actually hearing God's word on the next. What does he say? He says, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. What was it that Abraham trusted? The power of God, specifically to bring about the resurrection. He says, not only have you not heard the scriptures, but your God isn't powerful enough. You don't believe in the powerful God of scripture. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. In other words, the institutions in heaven are different than the institutions on earth. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, so he quickly answers their problem, and then he begins to teach them, you know, the resurrection actually is taught in the law of Moses. He says, regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was written or what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Didn't include it here in the slides, but the response of everyone was astonishment. Astonishment at his teaching because this fully refuted the Sadducees' claim that the resurrection was not taught in the law of Moses. And he doesn't have to explain very much because it should be very clear that there were promises left for the children of Abraham and for Abraham himself. Promises which they received hope of, but not receipt of. And if God does not give them the fulfillment to those promises, then God cannot be trusted in anything. And so their entire faith is predicated on what they disbelieve, the resurrection. And as we'll see as we get into our blessed hope, the same is true for us. Our hope is based on the truth of the resurrection. 
But this is one of the verses which the Sadducees did not take as authoritative, but which clearly teaches resurrection, and it teaches the timing of Israel's resurrection as well. In Daniel 12.1, it says, Now at the time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, that is Israel, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Now, you guys are all here in this church. You should know what this refers to. This refers to the tribulation period, that time of distress which will par- or which will uh, cause all other times of distress to pale in comparison. At that time, your people, specifically Israel, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life. Now he says many of those, because at the beginning of the kingdom, at the end of the tribulation period, not all persons will be resurrected, but only those who have an inheritance in the kingdom. Those who are not only children of Abraham by blood, but children of Abraham by faith as well. See, the Pharisees had that problem going for them, that they believed all children of Israel by blood, apart from faith, would receive inheritance in the kingdom. Those who had faith or those who had faithfulness only increased their status in the land, but that God would give to Israelites, any Israelites who are children of Abraham by blood, inheritance in the kingdom. Both of these were two opposite ends of false doctrine. What Jesus came teaching and what scripture teaches is that those who are the remnant of Israel Those who trusted in God's promise within Israel had an inheritance in this kingdom and that they would be resurrected after the time of distress and they would be resurrected into the land of Israel. Daniel 12, 13, God says to Daniel, as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest, a euphemism for death and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. See, Daniel, coming towards the end of 70 years of captivity in Babylon, thought that it was about time for God to come and establish his kingdom. Just a few visions earlier, God had told him, this is not the time for the kingdom. There is still a program of 70 sets of seven years remaining. And so he tells Daniel here very explicitly, you are not going to live to see the kingdom, but you will be resurrected into it. It is your promise. It is your hope. And this is the same hope that all of Israel has. Jesus giving his farewell to Israel in the Olivet Discourse, telling them of what is to come in their future, says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky. The powers of heaven will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great with power and with great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now, this is an increased promise from Deuteronomy 30 when he promised that he would gather all of Israel from the lands to which they are scattered. Here he identifies not just the lands and the four winds, 
but from the sky as well. All of those who are dead, as well as all of those who are alive, will be gathered together in the land of Israel upon Christ's return. Our hope is based on the same power of God, the same power of his resurrection. In fact, our hope is based on the same program of resurrection, but ours comes at a different time. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Just as Adam caused death to be spread to all men, Jesus is able to offer life through resurrection to all men. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now there's an important note to be made here because this verse does not teach universal salvation of all persons. Though the blood of Christ is sufficient to pay for the sins of all mankind, faith is required to receive that gift of grace. And so while all human race that has ever been born has been born into the race of Adam, and so all can be said to be in Adam, not all can be said to be in Christ. One is imputed into Christ, into his righteousness, and into his uh, life on the basis of grace through faith. And so all of mankind dies in Adam. All of mankind has the opportunity of life in Christ, but only those who are in Christ through faith on the basis of grace will be made alive. But not only that, each in his own order. There is a program for the resurrection. It's not one big mass resurrection at the end of the age any more than Christ still remains dead and awaits his resurrection. That's not the case. Christ has been resurrected already. And he is part of the same resurrection that we share in. But it comes in stages. First, Christ, the first fruits, the promise of what's to come. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. And then the end comes. This is prior to the end. We just saw that Israel has its hope of resurrection after the end. This is when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. This is what he's doing in the tribulation period. He is abolishing the reign and the rule of mankind on earth through the Antichrist. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his foot. Now looking at 1 Thessalonians 4, which has one of the clearer passages on the resurrection, combined with the rapture, it puts them almost at the same time. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. In other words, this doctrine is a doctrine of hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In other words, if Jesus was raised from the dead, you have a guarantee of the hope that you place in your own resurrection. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
In other words, while we look forward to the rapture and while we have that hope, and while 1 Thessalonians in every single chapter mentions the rapture by a different name, but mentions the rapture, and promises that it comes before the wrath of God, which is poured out on the earth. We have the promise that the resurrection of the dead in Christ comes even before that. That means that the next thing that we will see prophetically is the rapture of the church. But the next thing that will happen, which we will not see, is the resurrection of the dead. This will occur probably moments, if not at the same time, but logically preceding the rapture of the living church at that time. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Now at this time, Christ does not come down to the earth. He simply descends from heaven. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air not on the earth, gathered together in the land of Israel. There's still at least seven years, if not more, before God brings the kingdom of this earth to the land of Israel. But this is prior to. This is God's rescue plan so that he can turn his work on this earth back towards Israel specifically in his program of stripping Satan of his power in this earth and his power over his people to trample his people. Paul ends this statement in 1 Thessalonians 4 by saying, And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is a hopeful and a comforting promise that the resurrection comes before these events of the end. Now, we're almost done here, but we want to really drive this point home because this is the hope that we stake our life on. And it's trustworthy. But these Thessalonians, to whom Paul wrote his first letter, were easily swayed when someone pretending to be Paul wrote them another letter saying that they're in the tribulation period already. And he writes them to say, essentially, did you learn nothing? If the tribulation is present, then you missed the rapture. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, or in him. This is referring back to that statement that he made in his previous letter. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure, to be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. So someone else sends a letter claiming that it is Paul. Now this is Paul's third letter. He wrote Galatians, then he wrote 1 Thessalonians, then he wrote 2 Thessalonians. At the end of 2 Thessalonians, he adds to the script, this is my signature so that you know it's me. Why? Because people were forging documents claiming that they were from Paul and they were not. He says, don't be disturbed either by spirit or message or a letter as if it is from me to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, do not believe someone who sends a letter to you saying that it is the tribulation period. Why? Because it's simply impossible. Based on what he had taught them about prophecy, they should know for absolute certainty that if they are still here, it is not the tribulation period. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the departure comes first. Now he was referring back to 1 Thessalonians 4, 
concerning the rapture and the resurrection. And now he refers to a departure in the same context. And he says, this comes first. The man of lawlessness is then revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. This is referring back to Israel's farewell in the Olivet Discourse. This is the plan and program for Israel, not for the church, that they will see the man of Satan exalting himself as Satan's Messiah in the place of Christ, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now Paul, I think in his frustration, says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? In other words, in the brief weeks that we had together, I taught you Bible prophecy well enough for you to know that you cannot possibly be in the tribulation today because you are still here. After Paul's little apocalypse there in 2 Thessalonians 2, he concludes with this. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. In other words, you should be comforted, not distressed by the word of God. Prophecy is a hopeful comfort because we have our hope in God and in his rescue of us before he pours out his wrath on this world because we are no longer objects of his wrath, because we are now in Christ. And as we sang earlier and as Ruth quoted for us from uh, Romans 8, chapter 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God is to pour wrath on the church, then God himself is a liar. We are not safe in Christ if we are still the objects of God's wrath. But we are safe in Christ. We are no longer objects of wrath. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, this is the gospel that Paul preached. This is the verse that we're memorizing this month because it is foundational to our trust in God, that we know what we believed and we know what the promise is. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. This is the saving gospel, in other words. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, and we'll look at what that means in a few verses, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. In other words, this isn't a different gospel than Paul believed to get saved. This is the same thing that saved Paul. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. You see, a faith that just believes in the death of Christ but does not believe in the resurrection of Christ is a faith that does not believe in the promise of God. Because the promise isn't just that Jesus would die for our sins. Our promise was that Jesus would die for our sins in order to give us eternal life. And that eternal life necessitates a resurrection because we have not yet received the full promise that we have been given, which is eternal life in him. Paul continues, Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, 
then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. This is what he meant by if your faith was in vain. Not if you didn't believe hard enough or if you fell away from the faith because it's not about you and your strength of faith, but the strength of the object of your faith. But he says, if you think that that object of faith is, or if you uh, do not believe in the promise of that object of faith, in other words, if you don't believe who was resurrected from the dead, then what's the point in believing in the gospel? Because it's not true anyways. He's not saying that this isn't going to, uh, basically, he's, I'm walking down a rabbit trail. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God that he raised Christ. So in other words, the apostles come teaching the resurrection. If the resurrection isn't true, then for one, their sins have not been paid for because Christ's resurrection was the sign that the sins payment had been accepted. But if he is not raised, there's also no hope for them to be raised. And then there's no hope in God's promises. And these who come teaching the resurrection of the dead are false teachers and shouldn't be listened to anyways. So because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. This is his hypothetical situation if what they believe that there is no resurrection is true. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Your faith is based on the truth of the resurrection. And your hope is found in the future resurrection. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. When we look back at Abraham, what do we recognize that he did not do? He did not hope in uh, God in this world only, but he hoped in him in the world to come. He looked forward to the promises that God still had yet to fulfill and knew certainly that God would fulfill them. And he knew that God was powerful enough to raise him from the dead and that by golly, that's what he's going to have to do in order to be faithful to his promise. And so that's what he's going to do. And that's the same faith, the same hope that we have. We know certainly that God has promised a resurrection. We know that he will bring it about. And in this age of the church, he has even made the truth of the resurrection part of the saving gospel. So in conclusion this morning, the beginning of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant is seen come to pass, both in the birth of the promised seed son as well as in the first acquisition of private property ownership within Canaan. Abraham's faith in God's promises leads him to bury Sarah in Canaan a demonstration of his hope in the fulfillment of God's eternal promises. And our hope, like Israel's, is tied to our knowledge of God's power and the hope of the resurrection. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for hope. We thank you for life. We thank you that it was valuable enough to you to restore life, that you sent your son to die on a cross for us. We thank you that you have made it so easy to receive life from you. Something we could not restore to ourselves, you have given to us as a free gift. And we receive it by entering into the person of Christ through faith alone. We thank you that you have given this to us as a gracious gift. We thank you that we can stake all of our hopes and dreams and, and needs in you. And that you abundantly fill them all. We thank you that we have 
no need to mourn and to weep as those who have no hope do, but we have an eternal hope in you. We do praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.